What it do, fam? Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Uh, today, we are going to be dropping a Instagram live that I did recently that people found particularly Fifi. And so we wanted to put it out on the bigger broadcast node. And this is the bigger broadcast node. Um, just to give you guys an update of what's unfolding in my life, I mentioned on one of the previous podcasts that I'm going to start this like subscription model where I start trying to have a different type of conversation. And we're currently calling it Project Lyceum that might continue to evolve and transform. Uh, what does feel alive for me now is that we're going to start to intersperse a like a mini podcast series where Graham and I are going to explore um, the dozens of cognitive biases that we've all evolved to have that make us shitty at thinking and shitty at having tough conversations. And um, we're going to be teaching this so he and I can have better conversations, so our friend group can have better conversations, and hopefully to help you guys think a little bit more clearly, and so you guys can begin to have more um, intelligent conversations. And then I feel like this is going to feed into whatever this subscription service is going to be, because what I imagine I want to do there is I'm going to purposefully have controversial conversations and try to navigate it in a in a type of integrity and humility and earnestness that I don't see happening almost anywhere and the truth is is I don't know how to have those type of conversations yet so it feels like this mini series is going to be to slowly teach me and Graham how to even hold this space so that we can begin to um, share it publicly. I actually had a dream uh, a couple of nights ago that ended up being one of the most powerful dreams that I've remembered having in a long time. And I felt like I was in a archaic mythological setting and it was nighttime. And it felt like I was the apprentice to a shaman of my tribe and that it was nighttime and everyone else in the tribe was asleep. And the shaman was in the middle of the uh, tribe doing this type of summoning ritual where he was trying to bring something from the spiritual dimension into this dimension and that he was teaching me. And I could see him holding his hand up to almost receive a gift and something materialized in his hand. And it looked almost like the size of a piece of paper but the fabric was like a quilt almost and embedded in it was the image of a buffalo. And the felt sense in the dream in that moment was that this was buffalo medicine. And he gave it to me to hold it. And I was laying on my back <clears throat> kind of like next to him while he was doing this. And I held it to my chest and it felt like this sacred object. And there was this man lying next to me that felt like one of the older men in the tribe, not an elder, but like an adult. And he taps me on the shoulder and he asks, hey, can I see that? And I give it to him. And the moment I give it to him, the dream transforms and I'm like in a bedroom and he leaps to the window and he throws the curtains to the side really aggressively. And then he slaps the 
buffalo medicine quilt on the window. And the felt sense was that he was a traitor and that he was showing it to the enemy tribe and that this was almost like a beacon or a signal for them to invade. And then he turns towards me and he starts to move towards me in an aggressive way where it feels like he's going to like steal more of my like mana. And then I feel the urgency to try to get up and yell to my tribe that this has just happened. But I had sleep paralysis and I couldn't fucking move. And I woke up gasping and in terror. And as I sat with that dream for a while, it feels like, um, for me, what Buffalo medicine represents is when a storm starts to move across the Great Plains, the buffaloes have an instinct where they get shoulder to shoulder and then they walk directly towards the center of the storm because they instinctually know that that's the fastest way to move through it. And so there feels like there's this call in me to try to elevate the type of conversations that people are having about what's going on in the world and that to do it too quickly is reckless. It feels like the dude who tapped me on my shoulder is actually a representation of the part of me that wants to broadcast what I'm doing. The part of me that wants to share a little bit too quickly instead of sitting and integrating with what's coming up. And I can feel that I can feel that I'm capable of having um, these harder conversations that it feels like our culture needs to have. And I can also feel that a part of my immaturity is trying to share it too quickly. And so that's kind of the reasoning behind Graham and I beginning to do this, almost this like public teaching of ourselves and for all of you about how to have hard conversations. And a part of having hard conversations is to begin to recognize how bad you are at having hard conversations because you have been designed by evolution to think tribally. And all you got to do is look at your motherfucking Instagram to see anyone who has a strong opinion in almost any direction. They're tribal. And tribal thinking in a global civilization because of the connection of modern communicative technology is going to lead to war. It's going to lead to division. It's going to lead to violence and it's not going to help. And I feel specifically called to try to improve the situation. And my psyche is clearly saying, not yet, stupid. Take it slow. So that's going to be coming. Um, if you would like to support the podcast, you guys know the motherfucking deal. Uh, you can get on my newsletter. You can check out my two journaling courses at ericgossi.com. And you can share this podcast with anyone that you think it'll help because that helps. Uh, I love you guys so much. And please enjoy this Instagram live that Graham said was particularly Fifi. What to do, fam? It has been a minute since I have been uh, on a live. And I want to begin with just saying how fucking grateful I am that I even get to do something like this, that I have the ability to ask thousands of people what questions they have for me. And you guys actually ask incredible questions and that there's a bunch of people that want to hear 
what the fuck I have to say. And I'm just so fucking grateful. So thank you. And I wanted to begin with a story. Um, some of you might know, but for the last week, I've been on an incredible like party trip to celebrate uh, Aubrey Marcus's uh, wife, Bailano Marcus's birthday. And we did a bunch of incredible stuff. And I think from a lot of people on the outside, it's going to look like it's about money and being hot. But for me, the most incredible experience was actually the last day that we were there. We're all hung over. We're all hanging out trying to get the Floyd Mayweather and Logan Paul fight to work. And we're working on it for like an hour and a half trying to get the um, stream to work. And Aubrey, after seeing us try to do this for an hour and a half, he asks everyone like, okay, everyone, just take a moment and let's feel into the stream beginning to work. Let's hear the crowd, feel the excitement, feel how much we're enjoying watching this together. And y'all, for an hour and a half, me and my dude Pat tried to make it work by checking out all sorts of links and doing all sorts of restarting. The moment Aubrey did this, the fucking stream worked and it blew my mind that this is something that we all pay lip service to, you know, that your mind creates your reality. But I can really feel that I don't live my life as if that's true. And my big takeaway from this trip is what would my life look like if I, if I began to act as if that's true? You know, and one of the things that I'm seeing is coincidence. And every materialistic scientist, including my skepticism, that's what they all say. Coincidence. Coincidence. And so the thing that comes up is run the experiment. Actually see if you can try to live your life for a month as if what you thought has an effect on material reality that science can't yet currently explain. So that was the big like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. So let's start to answer some of these motherfucking questions. How do you know if you're in alignment with the person that you are dating? So the first question and the most important question and really the essence of the entire spiritual work is how do you know if you're in alignment with yourself? How do you know? And I think that one of the big things in our culture is that we've incurred enough trauma uh, where we are disconnected from ourselves and the beginning of the spiritual work is to even begin to realize in your body what it feels like to be in alignment. And so the first thing is, are you telling the truth? Are you telling the truth to yourself about this relationship? If you can't tell the other person your truth, the relationship is not in alignment, period. Now, when you tell the truth, does a bunch of shit start coming up? Do coping behaviors and addictive behaviors and avoidant behaviors start to arise? If they do, you got some work to do. Congratulations. If they're unwilling to do the work with you to work through the coping and avoidant and addictive behaviors that we all use to protect ourselves from really being seen because we don't think that we're worthy of love or we don't think that we're worthy, period, then it's probably out of alignment. Um, 
And then if you're continuing to seek a relationship that is not in alignment, then the work is for you. Uh, did you have a parent that gaslit you or that didn't show up for you, that you thought you had to go save? And did you abandon yourself over and over and over again to go try to help them? Are you doing that again? Because you don't think you're worthy of love unless you go save somebody else. Relationship is where you're going to learn all the shit because fundamentally we are relating creatures. There's a quote, and I forget who it's by, but a human being in isolation is not a human being. A human being is only a human being in relationship. We are relational animals. No one's ever succeeded on their own. No one's ever failed on their own. No one's ever killed on their own. No one's ever saved a life on their own. Uh, I'm not talking to you alone. You're not receiving this alone. So, yeah. All right. A lot of relationship questions. How do you move on from a breakup that was your first real relationship? Um, I think the idea of move on, it sets a lot of people up to fail. And what I would change the question to is, how can I feel fully the grief of the death of this relationship? And then it's all about feeling and grieving. Uh, we are a culture that is terrible at grieving because we are terrified of death and we our culture is created essentially to ignore the fact that we die. And, you know, look at the buildings that we've created that are the odes to death. You know, they're hospitals and they're built kind of like prisons. And we put people off in rooms, we stick them with a bunch of things and we don't really want to see it. Um, and so the, that cultural terror trickles all the way down to, we don't know how to grieve the death of a relationship. Like one of the things that all humans do when you fall in love is you begin to create a future that the two of you could co-evolve fully into. And uh, the pain of relationship is essentially either the transformation or the full death of that vision of the future that the two of you began to create about what you could be. And that a breakup is a death. It's a death of that potential future. And the human elegance, when we don't get in our own way about what we do when something dies, is that we grieve. Like one of the things to feel into is we're the only animal that cries. And I think that the fact that we cry is an insight of our spiritual nature. That we are something like gods because we are able to grieve. We are able to cry. And most of us don't cry, you know? And so the invitation is, um, what wants to be felt? There's a great book called The Smell of Rain on Dust, which is um, a collection of different um, grieving practices that you can do. And like, maybe you need to write out fully and deeply what the vision of the future that you had about this relationship and then go to a river somewhere and sing it to the river and just weep and then take off all your clothes and go into the river and let the moving water cleanse you maybe you need to go fucking scream at something you know maybe you need to write a letter where you say every fucking thing that you've ever wanted to say to that person that you've never said and fucking feel it fully and feel your face get all just like get it out and then burn it and then dance around the fire. I don't know. Like 
there's no right way or wrong way to do it other than what needs to be felt and feel that shit fully. Not to blame someone else, not to try to change their behavior, not to try to punish or to guilt, but just to fucking feel. And then go do whatever it is you got to do. I love dancing and I love crying. So those are two of my fucking go-tos. Have you ever felt the residual spirit of the opiates resurfacing during an ayahuasca ceremony? So for people who might not know, when I was in high school, I got addicted to opiates. Um, I got surgery on my rotator cuff uh, when I was a senior. Uh, and that surgery ended my basketball dreams. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was absolutely depressed. I lived alone. I didn't have any parent figures around. I didn't have anyone who was able to see the fact that I was depressed and knew what to do. And um, after my surgery, I got a fat prescription to Oxycontin. And uh, I got to the point where I would skip breakfast and I would take two and I would drive to school as fast as I could. And then I would just be a fucking zombie in my classes. And that went on for a couple of months. And the only reason I got out of that addiction was because I didn't know how to get more. And once I ran out, uh, I just started eating and eating and I got thick and like, not like muscular thick, but like fat boy thick. And um, the truth is, is that it's never come up uh, viscerally in an ayahuasca experience. But one of the things that I can feel into is whenever I have a deep experience where my nervous system gets really activated in a healing way, I can feel that my baseline, like how I move through life, my connection to my body is uh, inhibited. Like it feels like there's parts of my body that I can't consciously activate that is still a residual effect of having those opiates like numb my nervous system for months and months. And whenever I, uh, you know, intentionally do a heavy amount of cannabis or if I do body work or if I do ecstatic dancing and sometimes when I'm on mushrooms or LSD, I can feel that like there's a lot of my nervous system that is not activated that I feel like someone who hadn't gone through the injuries and the surgeries and the medication that I went through, uh, they wouldn't have the same deficit. And I can't really know, but that's my intuition. What is a sign that my trauma has been fully healed? So this is a great question. Um, I truly believe that one of the main uh, goals of our generation is to essentially begin to heal the trauma that we've inherited from our parents who inherited it from their parents who inherited it from their parents that were a repercussion of World War II and then World War One and uh, slavery and the you know imperialism of the West and just like there's a bunch of trauma in us and one of there's a couple of ways to look at it I think on a spiritual level it's not about healing your trauma, so it goes away. Because I truly believe that um, each of us have special spiritual gifts that are the results of having the specific traumas that we've gone through. But you know that you've integrated it 
when you have felt what wanted to be felt. And so um, there's different types of trauma. And I would recommend that people check out my podcast, What is Trauma, to really get a view of the landscape of trauma because there's a bunch of different types. But when it comes to um, what's called shock trauma or conventional PTSD, uh, you know that you've healed it essentially once the symptoms of trauma are no longer there. So depending on how long you've had the trauma, you can have more and more symptoms. But if you have a hard time sleeping, if you have night terrors, uh, really one of the main ones is if you have night terrors. Um, if your nervous system is constantly in a fight or flight activation, like one of the ways to know that someone has unpro unprocessed PTSD is their eyes are always like this. Like their eyes just always, their eyes are always scanning. And that's unless they have just gone through a traumatic experience or they just did a bunch of MDMA or cocaine to make their nervous system be fully activated. If that's their baseline, the wide eyes, they likely have unprocessed trauma. And what allows for that type of trauma to be processed is essentially, is there a safe container where they feel like they can surrender? Have they been given the internal resources to learn how to regulate the activation of their nervous system? And then there's a bunch of different practices that you can put into that safe space once that person has cultivated some baseline self-regulating techniques. And some are breath work, some's ecstatic dance. MDMA is incredibly powerful and MAPS is doing incredible research on that. LSD and mushrooms and ayahuasca are way more risky because of how potent and dynamic they can be. And the integrity of the space holder and the space itself have to be tremendously high if you're gonna use those ways of trying to process trauma. But, uh, there is a type of therapy called um, somatic experiencing therapy where you don't need to use any of the more dynamic substances and you can completely move through and heal and integrate your trauma. And then holotropic breath work created by Stanislav Grof is a more potent way, but is an incredibly safe and regulated container. And he has a whole school of practitioners and they fucking know what they're doing. And then if you're lucky enough to be able to work with either the MAPS like people and do the MAPS protocol where you use MDMA assisted psychotherapy and John Hopkins is doing a bunch of research where they're using mushrooms and psychotherapy to address trauma. But that's specifically for shock trauma. All of us have some shade of complex PTSD because we essentially grew up in a culture where um, the chances of you not incurring some form of complex PTSD is almost zero. And um, there's a great book called Complex PTSD that I would recommend to people if people are interested in that. But the thing about trauma is that it's so explosive but it's also so required to be addressed that me giving you the uh, information on an Instagram live is not adequate, but that I, I can point you to the proper containers. And the fact that you're even asking these questions is incredible. And yeah, I think that that's it for now on that question.
Uh, how is the book coming along? Um, man, my life is essentially me working on the book. So for people who don't know, the book is called The Twilight of a Titan. And, or, yeah. <laughs> and the idea for the book came last year as I was doing research for Aubrey Marcus's book. And I started to really get into the history of um, how our culture created psychiatry and how psychiatry created pharmaceuticals and how the pharmaceuticals were used and what the actual science was and the corruption that's gone on and the actual results of how effective they are. And it like, it made me so fucking angry and so excited and so sad and so passionate that um, I knew it's what my first book was going to be. And then interestingly, in the last six weeks, um, it's kind of hard to explain. I still don't know how to explain it, but what I thought was a symptom of a subset of culture that Western medicine was essentially eating its children by trying to heal it. And then I wanted to talk about the revolutionary spirit that I saw that was replacing that. What I'm starting to learn by uh, really starting to study what's called existential risk theory is I'm starting to learn it's not a subset of culture. It's the entirety of our Western culture is this Titan that's dying, that the way it operates eats its children and that the revolution is not just for mental health. It's for the entire fucking culture. And the scope of the book just amplified by an order of magnitude. And I'm trying to wrap my head around the whole map so I can even begin to think about it coherently. And I'm struggling. Like, it's a lot. Like, I'm basically having to try to learn evolutionary biology, game theory, which is a type of mathematics, but is also a type of uh, economics, which is also a type of human decision theory. And then learning how that's unfolded in the culture in the last two or 300 years. And it's overwhelming. And I've taken a break. Um, but I have this huge, insane mind map on my computer that I work on every day that uh, I'm super excited about. It's really hard. And I'm working on it every day. And uh, I don't know when the book's going to come out, but um, I'm not going to stop. So. Uh, what is your most profound revelation on a mushroom trip? I don't fucking know. Um, what is the most profound revelation? So honestly, what I would probably say is the first time I ever did mushrooms, I was 19. I was in college. I was studying cognitive psychology. I was super into philosophy. Um, Anyone who tried to bring any spiritual idea, I would fucking cut it up with philosophical skepticism. And uh, I was desperately trying to find my footing in the world while also destroying anyone's attempt to give me any idea that couldn't be explained by logic. And the first time I did mushrooms, I just laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed at the felt sense of knowing that I cannot figure life out only using logic and uh i just laughed for hours like nope that's not working nope that's not working nope 
So that's not working. And the last 10 years is essentially me trying to find the balance between how can I use this powerful mind to assist, you know, more life while also surrendering that there is more that I will never be able to even know that I don't know than what I can know in my lifetime. And, but also not giving up on it's also worthwhile to try to know well the things that can be known, that can be shared with other people to make more life better. And so that's probably the most profound one. But there's probably a lot I'm forgetting. Um, all right. Please explain archetypes like you're talking to a 12-year-old. Okay. Um, man. Oh, <laughs> this is a good question. Okay. Um, you know how you know things sometimes, but you don't know how you know it. Like maybe you know that someone is safe or you know that someone's not safe or you know that something is fun or you know that something is not going to be fun. In the same way that you can know things, but you don't know how you know them. Um, you come into the world with a set of ideas that weren't taught to you. But the moment you see them, you can feel in your body that they're familiar. And these images are different types of people. Like, you know what moms feel like. And you know what dads feel like. You know what friends feel like, and you know what scary people feel like. You know what a predator feels like, and you know what prey feels like. You know the type of animals that feel safe to, to be around, and you know that there's a the type of animals that don't feel safe to be around. Those are archetypes. There's so much more that I would want to say, but if I'm trying to keep it down to a 12-year-old, uh, that's probably the way that I would explain it. That's a great question. Archetypes are hard. Um, what does child education look like in the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible? So this is a great question, and I was just talking to someone about this yesterday, but... Uh, before we even get into child education, the more beautiful world our hearts know as possible begins with re-educating ourselves. How do you relate to yourself? How do you talk to yourself? How do you know how to feed yourself? How do you know what to say no to? How do you know what to act on as if it's true? How do you know what to be skeptical of? First, get in alignment with yourself, and that takes years of work. And then, how can you be in truth with one other person? How can you be in co-collaboration with one other person where both of you are saying yes to more life, to more beauty, to trying to navigate this world in a way that adds to life instead of takes away from life? And that takes years of work. And then... How do you do it with, with a third person, which is how you start to create tribe and start to create community? How do you navigate being friends 
and trying to figure out how to be in the world in a way that says yes to more life? How do you interact in a way where you can create beautiful things and decide on what you want to fucking do today and slowly start to learn the unconscious ways that you either hurt the earth or you hurt other people? And then only then can you even begin to think about how the fuck would you start a family? And I think if you can get even a little bit right how to be in alignment with yourself, how to be in alignment with one other person, how to be in alignment with a group, that your children being around that is going to be the primary education. The most important developmental period for our children is their first couple of years with you and with whoever the people are around them when they're just starting to come into existence. And that's where I'm at. I don't know what the fuck or how you would create uh, like an actual educational system yet. Um, I plan on getting good at those first three things so that I can have the audacity and maybe a little bit of competence to begin to look at um, how would you even raise children? Because the truth is I don't fucking know, but it feels like learn how to tell the truth Learn how to admit when you fuck up. Uh, Learn how to be in nature with them. Because I think there's something about nature that will teach them things that if you can just learn how to to allow them to listen to nature, that's going to take care of a bunch of shit. Um, That's where it starts. Um, How to get through the day when working a passionless job. Uh, you are the engine of passion. Your job is not the engine of passion. Uh, when I graduated with my fancy degree in cognitive psychology, I was working at Chipotle wrapping burritos for, I think, $7.50 an hour. And the minimum wage at the time was like six seventy-five, And so I thought I was fucking crushing it. Um, and like, I brought the passion. Now I totally admit that being able to do that is a consequence of my privilege of not having severe trauma, uh, growing up in a world where I felt like I was powerful and I was safe and I had the self-belief that I could improve my environment. And so I recognize that all of that is a combination of luck and privilege and also a little bit of my hard work, but still there's a lot of privilege there. But Like what I would do when I was at Chipotle is I would seek to make people laugh as much as I could. I would seek to do my job as well as I could because it made me feel good. And then I would purposefully try to meditate when things got really hard. Like I would actually hum to myself this spiritual song that I learned from a video game that I loved when I was a kid when things got really hard at work. But then what I would do is after work, I didn't go home and fucking veg out. Like every weekend I went to Barnes and Noble and ravishly read books and tried to learn how to create the life that I wanted because I knew that this path wasn't what I wanted to do. And so one of the things to feel into is wherever you're at, you can make it better or worse depending on how you choose to show up. So that's baseline. You are responsible 
or you at least have the power to make any situation a little more beautiful or any situation a little more shitty, depending on how you show up to it. And then once you take responsibility for that and you just do your best with what you have, with where you're at, then when you have your own time, dream into what your life, what you want your life to be. Like really feel into like, what is my dream life? And then once you've created this orgiastic vision that turns on every cell in your body, then it's about, okay, what is the work that I need to do to become the human that could embody that future? And like, for me, it was a lot of reading. It was a lot of writing. It was a lot of talking. It was uh, changing habits and learning how to be in relationships. And, you know, like I'm still trying to figure it the fuck out, but Connecting to the power that you have in any moment to make it better or worse, always. And then constantly like cultivating the yumminess of your future. That to me is what I would recommend for whatever job you have. And to recognize you're the engine of passion, not the job. If I wanted to learn more about Jungian psychology, where would you suggest I start? Um, Man and His Symbols was written by Carl Jung at the end of his life because his friends were like, dude, you're about to die. And no one knows what the fuck you're talking about other than like 50 people. And the world needs to know, could you please write a book for the average reader? And so he began to write this book. He wrote the first chapter and then he died. And then his friends, you know, took the mantle and wrote the next like four chapters. And so that for sure is the book to start with. It's called Man and His Symbols. And then once you've read that, I would recommend you get the Joseph Campbell, um, the portable Jung, which is Joseph Campbell creating a collection of some of Jung's more accessible works. Um, and then once you read that, you're already in the top 5% of people in the world when it comes to trying to understand what the fuck Jung is saying. And then if you dare uh, start to read his original works, um, it's fucking hard. <laughs> it's fucking tough. Uh, so that's what I would recommend. Um, I feel like I have a leadership role to play, but I feel stifled by social anxiety. What are your suggestions? There's a couple of ways to approach this. Uh, one of the things is, for me, what changed my life was making a spiritual commitment to do the things that I feel called to do, even if I'm afraid. If I feel called to do it, especially if I'm afraid to do it, I'm just going to do it. And by making that commitment, you're going to learn what it feels like to suck at shit. You're going to learn what it feels like to do things, even though you're afraid to do it. You're going to learn what it feels like to fail and that you don't die. And once you start to cultivate that reflex, you, you start to believe in yourself. You're like, wow, I'm actually brave. Okay, I actually do things that I'm afraid to do. And I think that that will naturally begin to show you 
what your natural leadership style is. Because fundamentally, people are leaders if they know how to listen to the whisper inside of them and then they act on it. Like every single one of us, there is no one who doesn't have the ability to be a leader. There is no one who does not have the ability to be a leader. And I think that it begins with lead yourself. You're not one person. You're a whole collection of fucking things inside of you. There's a scared child inside of you. There's a fucking angry rebel inside of you. There's a fucking sex addict inside of you. There's a comfort addict inside of you. Learn how to lead yourself and do the things that you know you want to do in this life. Because I don't know if we get more than one. There's a lot of people that believe that we get more than one. I don't know. Um, And so the invitation is begin to lead yourself and then you will naturally begin to inspire other people. And one of the things is in our broken culture, there's a type of leader who's really a dominator. And um, he's not, and I say he because it tends to be men, but they don't inspire in other people that they can be leaders too. They actually inspire in other people that they're not worthy of being leaders and they need to follow this person. That's bullshit. And that that adds to the trauma of our culture. A true leader is in the back, bringing everybody up, explaining to them, you're a leader too. I'm going to empower you to be a leader and I'm going to do the thing first. Like it's a great story, but Alexander the Great in every battle, he would wear a double plumed helmet so everyone on the other side knew who the fuck he was. And he would lead the charge. He would be in the front. And it's, that's one of the reasons why he had one of the most successful armies that ever existed is because that motherfucker led. And we do war in a type of way now where the generals are fucking in rooms. They're not out there doing shit. And that feels like that is a example that exemplifies that a true leader is someone who is who will never ask the people around them to do something they aren't already doing and that they haven't already done and all of us are leaders so i hope that that answered or helped a little bit uh what is your experience with abundance and wealth mindset shifts so this is a great question um I grew up where uh, one of my parents believed that if you had a bunch of money, that equaled that you were evil and that the only way to get a lot of money is to be a bad person. And then I had another person and my other parent believed um, the world is not safe. Other people are not safe. So make as much money as you can, but keep it to yourself. You know, like it's not safe to like use it out in the world. And so those were the two money making mindsets that I had growing up. And the really beautiful thing is um, through meeting Aubrey, I got to meet someone who broke both of those money mindset models. Um, He is genuinely one of the best humans that I've ever met, and he has a bunch of money. And the way he uses his money is that he's not afraid that he's going to run out, that he, he will constantly put it back into the world to try to do beautiful and dope shit. And so just witnessing that there's a human whose behavior itself contradicts both of those ideas 
has just <sighs> given me permission. And one of the things that I still struggle with is I could be making so much more money than I am making now, but I don't know how yet to explain it to myself that it's being done in a way that genuinely adds to the beauty of the world. Even though I know a bunch of people around me who are really great coaches that if they got to hear me say that and I would be willing to open up and let them dissect me, they would tear my shit apart because it's fear. And that I genuinely know that anything that I do passionately is going to be helpful and good for the people who say yes to it. And that I could charge $100,000 for a one-on-one coaching thing and that the person who said yes to it would be glad that they did it. And I'm not doing it because I still have shit to overcome and shit to learn. And I'm new in the uh, truly allowing abundance into my life. And I'll fucking share with you guys as I learn more. But I came from almost no money. And I came from... uh, a path where even the idea of making a bunch of money was bad and that the only way to make money was to go be a servant to some company for 40 years and to invest. And uh, I'm getting to start from base zero and just slowly learn um, how to be abundant. And I'm still figuring it the fuck out. So I'm randomly scrolling through questions, and this is going to be a potential uh, controversial one. So the question is, did I get the vaccine? And I have not gotten the vaccine. And the life that I live, it has not genuinely come up in my life as something that anyone around me has needed me to get to feel safe. And that there's been nothing that I've tried to do where not having it has restricted me from doing it. Based off of what I understand through my independent research last year before COVID even started about um, how the pharmaceuticals operate, I'm skeptical. But also, everyone I know who believes that they know that it's terrible, I'm also skeptical of them. Because one of the things that I'm, I would say I'm an expert at is how, how the human mind learns and how the human mind biases what it doesn't know so it can feel safe. And when it comes to COVID and when it comes to politics and when it comes to any type of issue charged like this, unless you have put yourself through years of dedicated practice on how to think clearly, you are the victim of your own biology that seeks to make yourself feel safe by ignoring everything you don't already agree with, only cherry picking what you already do agree with, and then viciously fighting anyone who tries to propose any idea that you don't already agree with. One of the things that I feel offered to recommend is that if you have a strong opinion in either direction on any issue that is not something that you've done the direct individual experiential research on and you feel passionately enough to either judge other people or to attack other people, what I would recommend you do is spend an afternoon or an evening finding the the most reputable source that disagrees with you 
and start to follow them on either Instagram or YouTube or whatever. And then for two weeks, digest their information and really try to see what they are saying. Because there is on, on either side, no one knows. No one knows. No one knows. And the amount of, I don't know anyone on either side who is passionate about this issue, who purposefully digests the best information of the opposing side and gives it equal airtime and then admits to themselves uh, the parts of their belief system that they haven't researched deeply. And it's something that I'm passionate about learning how to do better is to start to create a forum to help people learn how to think more clearly because on both sides, we don't fucking know. Like I truly don't believe that the vaccines are as bad as the people who believe that they are the worst thing ever believe. But I also don't think that they're safe. Um, You know, there's a whole bunch of, there's mountains of research that shows that on average, almost any vaccine that you pick, it's not safe. but I also don't think it's as terrible as people think that it is. And the truth is, I'm willing to say, I don't fucking know. And I'm also willing to say that any, any person who feels like they know, if they sat down with me and we talked for three hours, we would very quickly get to, okay, there's like 1% of the things that you believe you know that I'm willing to agree that you've done really good work on. And I would even be willing to change my mind. And that there's 99% of the shit that uh, that you believe that you believe from super sloppy, very like shallow research. Like I spent months researching um, how antidepressants don't work, and it was so painful to make myself read the people who believe it works, but I did. And I looked at the studies and I felt so confused. And I really, really put like months of effort into it. And it was hard. It was hard. And there was 40 or 50 or 60 years worth of research and a bunch of other people who had already done research on it that I, would able, that I was able to go learn about and lean on. So I have a little bit of an understanding of how fucking hard it is to actually know anything that's complex. And I don't think anyone right now who is passionate about this on either side of the issue is doing earnest and humble investigation of what they don't know and of what their confirmation biases are. And um, it's one of the things that's creating the deep rift in our culture right now about even trying to discern what should I do with my life? Like, what the fuck is going on? And it's something that I'm really interested in trying to learn how to do publicly more because it feels like it's one of the most necessary things that needs to be done. So that's a fucking tangent. I hope that that made sense. What does the number 33 mean as I keep seeing it everywhere? Thank you. I don't fucking know what 33 means. Um, I haven't done a lot of individual deep looking into numerology. I don't know. So 
that's probably not what you were looking for. I just said three, three, three for this Instagram because it felt like it was fun. Um, does age matter in a relationship? Uh, it's up to you. So, okay, this is going to be a whole ass tangent, but, um, one of the things that I think people would dramatically improve their navigation of life if they learned is evolutionary biology. And evolutionary biology is a whole field of science that essentially looks at how have we evolved and what does our biology want? And just because our biology wants it, it doesn't mean it's good, but it explains why we have these drives. So when it comes to age and relationship, evolutionary biology can give us a bunch of insight. Uh, age matters to the degree that it affects the ability to reproduce. So women tend to be attracted to men who are older than them because men who are older than them tend to have more resources. They tend to be more competent in the world. They tend to be able to provide more. And to the woman's genetics, that feels attractive and safe. For men, uh, age matters to the degree that it's an indicator of fertility. And so the reason we have makeup and it's not the only reason, but one of the evolutionary drives that we have makeup, that we have high heels, that we have beautiful clothing that accentuate certain parts of the body is that they amplify the archetypes that tell the male biology that that woman is fertile. And um, so men tend to be attracted to younger women and women tend to be attracted to older men. Of course, there's all sorts of nuance that can happen because we are in incredibly cognitive creatures and we have culture, but from a core biological level, uh, there are drivers in us that we weren't taught that our genes are expressing through our body. It also doesn't make it good and it doesn't mean that you're a slave to it, but there are drivers there. Um, and I think the big thing is that a gap in age can really be an indicator of uh, do you two have similar lifestyles and maturity where you could even create a relationship together? But uh, it's a subjective individual thing, but there is a evolutionary biology aspect to it that is useful to fucking know. Do you have any suggestions to help with anxiety or somatic anxiety symptoms? Well, yes, I do. Um, there's a couple of different ways to approach it, but, and there's a, quite a few things that can create anxiety. Uh, what we currently know as the most effective treatment for anxiety um, in psychotherapy is essentially helping the individual become more capable to go face the things that it's anxious about. And so it's not to try to engineer the world to be safer, but to cultivate your biology so you're more capable of facing the thing. So the easy thing to say, but the hard thing to do is go do the things that you're afraid to do. And so what that would look like if you were working with like a behavioral therapist that was, that was using what is called exposure therapy, 
is they would talk out with you, what are your anxieties? And then they would slowly expose you to um, slightly more intense degrees of that fear. And so an example would be if you're afraid of crowds, you would first just talk about uh, the last time that you were in a crowd and your heart rate would go up. You might start to sweat. And then the therapist would start to give you techniques to start to bring your nervous system back down. And so maybe that's breathing techniques. Maybe that's tapping. And there's a bunch of research of tapping being super effective. But they essentially start to give you techniques to learn how to regulate your nervous system. And then they might start to show you like a video of a concert. And, and your heart rate might start to elevate again. And you might start to sweat again. And they'll give you more techniques. And maybe something comes up in your past about this time that you got lost at a festival or you got lost at a carnival. And you might work through that and then you come back to the present moment. And then eventually it would lead to, they take you to a fucking concert and you use all the tools that you slowly started to uh, learn with them in that environment. And then you get to the point where you are able to be in the thing that you were afraid of because you got stronger. So that's one way to approach it. Another one is that your nervous system might be taxed. Like maybe you have PTSD and that, you are in a constant state of a biological fragility because you don't get good rest because you're constantly activated. And maybe you have to do trauma work. Like if you don't get good sleep, your feelings of anxiousness go up dramatically because your cortisol is coursing through you and you weren't able to repair adequately while you were sleeping. And that maybe just fixing your sleep without doing any exposure therapy uh, might be enough. So there's a biological basis that if you take care of your biology, you're just your genuine felt sense of competence in the world goes up. But then if you have specific phobias, every time there's a great fucking story that I think Carl Jung explained, but that he met a shaman and the shaman was trying to explain fear to him. And there was a scorpion on the ground and the shaman took a stick and drew a line around the scorpion. And because of the way the scorpion evolved, it, it can't cross that line. It sees that as like a barrier. And so once the circle was drawn around the scorpion, the scorpion started to get a bit agitated because it couldn't get out. And then the shaman cut the circle in half with his stick. So, and then the scorpion got even more frantic and then he cut it in half again. And the scorpion got even more frantic. And then he finally cut it to the point where the scorpion couldn't move. And the way the story goes is that the scorpion stung itself to death. That is what phobia does. If you're afraid of something and you allow that to keep you from doing things that you genuinely love to do, it shrinks what feels like the world is to you. And if you continue to turn away from the thing that you're afraid of over and over and over and over and over again, you will collapse in on yourself and you might have severe depression. You might get a psychosis and that the way to liberate is to face the thing that you're afraid to do. And so there are really great ways to do that. Um, and you can start with your physiology, like get your fucking sleep right. Like really working out is a really powerful thing to do. There's actually this female um, who uh, specifically works with women who have gone through sexual trauma. 
And the first thing that she does with them is she has them work out in a specific way where it strengthens all the muscles in their back. So they start to stand differently in the world and their posture starts to change. And she has found through 20 or 30 years of work that that's the most effective place to start. And then you can start doing the trauma work. But if you can actually have them feel powerful and safe in their body through exercise, that actually changes the way they experience everything. And so there's multiple ways to approach trying to heal anxiety. But essentially, I believe anxiety and depression and ADHD, all these things, they are messages from an intelligence inside of you that's asking you to do something specific. And it's actually an invitation to grow. It's not because something's wrong with you. You guys asked some fucking great questions. All right. Uh, journaling plus breath work, the main practices that made you so awesomely sensitive besides plant medicine. I don't know what you're asking. Maybe you're asking, um, what are some of the things that made me so awesomely sensitive? Uh, the first one is... Um, Grow up with a mother who absolutely loves you, but who suffers from depression. And so you simultaneously feel like you're capable of doing anything, but that also you're fundamentally unworthy and that you have to be the most incredible human ever in order to be worthy of love. And then sit with that trauma for a long time. Um, what's really interesting is that people who have emotionally volatile parents in order to survive, have to become incredibly sensitive at tuning into the nervous system of the people around them in order to predict how they will behave. And so people who are empaths are actually people who have gone through that specific type of trauma where they had to learn in order to survive how to intuit other people's emotional disposition. And all of, the, all of us have this on some level. It's what it means to be human. But the people who are super sensitive are the ones who tended to have parents like that. So um, have that type of trauma. And then um, for me, like I was so in my head for such a long time that what really allowed me to begin to feel, to begin to feel was actually microdosing LSD. And I started that probably four years ago. And it was through microdosing that I was beginning to be able to be like, I feel things in my body. What is that? And um, I slowly was able, through microdosing, it amplified my intuition just enough where I could begin to act on it. And almost like feeding a fire, once I started to act on it, it got louder and it got louder and it got to the point where I didn't need to microdose, but I still love to microdose. Um, and then the big thing was uh, when I started doing psychedelics, uh, because of some synchronicities in my life, I really dedicated myself to writing trip reports. So basically, whenever I would do a psychedelic, I would write essentially like uh, like I was a journalist going to some country reporting back to the people about what happened, but I was doing it to myself. And so through, you know, two or three years of doing a lot of psychedelics, I constantly trained myself to really try to notice 
what was happening in me so I could tell the story back to myself. And that was a huge, that's a huge part of why I am what I am. And then the other one is meditating. There's a specific type of meditation um, that's called noting. Um, And fundamentally, it's a type of vipassana or a type of mindfulness meditation where step one is you just learn how to keep your awareness on your breath. And I'll give you the uh, cheat code. You never will be able to just keep your awareness on your breath. Once you do that long enough, the next stage is to notice what was the thing. Okay, so to try to explain, once you start to meditate, you will begin to notice like, oh, I haven't been paying attention to my breath for the last two minutes because I was off in this mental fantasy about what I'm afraid to do at work. And then once you notice that you're off, you bring it back to your breath. And that's step one. But once you do that enough, the next step is the moment you notice that you're no longer paying attention to your breath, what is the thing that you were experiencing right before that? Was it a sensation in your body? Was it an image? Was it a movie? Was it a word? And just beginning to note whatever that thing is and then non-judgmentally coming back to your awareness. I got really into that for like a year. Um, I'm disappointed that I don't have that practice right now, but you know, hopefully I'll get back to it one day. But the combination of having that type of wounding relationship as a child, which was actually a gift, plus uh, writing trip reports for a long time, and then microdosing um, have helped me to have like what really is a uh, abnormal inner sensitivity to what's arising inside of me. And then the last part is like, <clears throat> I did MDMA a long time ago, probably when I was like 24. And it was the first time I ever did MDMA. And I did it with my partner back then. And the moment that that just wave of love came over me, because I had studied as much cognitive psychology and evolutionary psychology as I had, I had the background information. But the moment that I really felt into like, oh, I am a monkey who is trying his best. Like really fundamentally feeling that I am this goofy, all of us are these goofy monkey things that are inside of a culture that is not healthy for us. We are genuinely trying our best. There was this complete dissolution of self-shame. And so one of the reasons why I'm able to be as sensitive to what's happening inside of me is that I'm willing to feel it. Like I'm willing to feel whatever the thing is because I don't believe it's fundamentally shameful. And I still struggle with that. Like I still struggle with it. I struggle showing it or saying it, but I don't struggle feeling it inside of me. And I think coming to a place of just fundamental compassion for the human condition and that we are blundering monkeys trying our absolute best. That I can just give like a, oh, it's okay to feel whatever it is that I feel. All right. That's an hour. I love you guys so much. I truly 
just love the fact that I get to do this and that you guys ask such great fucking questions. I still have like 50 fucking questions that I haven't got to, but I hope that this served you. Um, I'm on fire. I feel so good. Thank you. I love y'all and have a beautiful fucking day.